calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day, life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. How about that? Hey, so I would like Yeah, there's our audience. We got the notification game. Okay. Great. Welcome. I'm so super excited about this super. this episode. That's uh, a Hollywood gonna... expression, by the way. What is <laughs> super excited? Oh my gosh, everyone's super excited about everything. I mean, we already have <laughs> our guest sitting here, Ashley C. Ford, but we're gonna, we're gonna bring her on a little bit later. If you don't mind, Ashley. What we like to do for the first couple minutes of our podcast is just talk a little bit about what's been going on. So- I love that. Perpetual celebration. Happening. Perpetual celebration. There's been Holy an awful lot to celebrate over the last five weeks. I'm just getting to the point where I'm not like completely like overstimulated every single night after work because I love work so much. Yeah. For me, it's feeling trashed, you know, <laughs> coming home. So I can tell myself I will exercise when I get home. No, I won't. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to camp out in front of the television and, and watch anime. I mean, <laughs> yeah, there's just we, nothing left. <laughs> we were absolutely disabused of that notion early on in this process. Like, like you, I thought, you know, okay, I'll continue to write in my spare time, you know, like we do. And I have been able to get a little bit done with the sentence a day, 
that we preach in life writing. And that was a lifesaver, just getting a pitch done that was due at about the same time we started working in this think tank, we'll call it, because it's, it, you know, it's kind of like a mini room, but it's called a think tank because it's not as long as a, a writer's room. And, and so it's a think tank, but we've been working. I'm not, I'm not clear on the rules for that. I, I'm not, you know, so let's, we'll, we'll err on the side of caution. Yeah. We, um, we, you know, for me, when I'm really happy that I've been able to you know, do one Pomodoro, one 25 minute segment when I get home you know, on the timer, but considering that the work is extremely intense, it's like doing eight to 10 Pomodoros in that room every day. And that is a brain burn, you know, because in, and then what would you say if you had to, to try to point out, first of all, we can finally say what the show is. Did we, did we say, I, that? I'm so nervous. No, no, I'm, I'm not nervous. I'm gonna say it's Crystal Lake. Okay. Brian you know? Fuller is doing a Crystal Lake series. That's all we're going to say about it. That's it's right. A That's all we're going to say based, based on, Friday on the, the IP 13th. of Friday the 13th. That's right. As you can imagine, it is a dream job. We know it's a dream job. It's not one of those situations where you're like five years later, oh, I wish I had understood how important that was. No, we know. And I we know how I important it is. what elevated genre means. Yes. You know, in the original Friday the 13th series, people were introduced and given just enough personality to know who they were before they got an arrow in the throat. What we're Pretty doing much. here <laughs> is it's, it's Brian is this genius. Brian Fuller, the Brian, Brian Fuller, Fuller, who yes. did Hannibal Pushing and American Gods and Star Trek and so forth. He's Woo. walking a line between a pretty valid level of psychological realism and enough. I don't want to call it hyper realism, just just, you know, just enough exaggeration that it's going to be fun to watch these people get killed with machetes. I mean, doing that so that you believe in these people and relish the special effects as a carnival ride is that's certainly far more than I had expected going into this and watching Brian work is like watching Michelangelo paint a ceiling. No, this guy is the real thing. He is. He, he is brilliant. And I've had the chance to watch how he makes decisions. And I, you know, and at some point, we're going to have a deep conversation about this because I think I've picked up on some of his internal representations and how he goes, how he decides and how he creates to a degree. I mean, it's just enough to feel like, oh, He's human. He's using his kinesthetics, auditory, visual, digital representation systems differently than most people do. And it's, you know, it's just the learning opportunity of a lifetime. And, and my respect is, is through this, through the roof. And I'm super nervous, obviously, talking about anything having to do with the show, because I'm always afraid of saying something we shouldn't say. But one of the things that I find really exciting is seeing Brian, the manager, Brian, who hired this staff. And we are working with people who were part of his team for Hannibal and Pushing Daisies and American Gods. We're working with people who worked on who who still work on reservation dogs. It's just I'm telling you. I mean, it would be great enough just that we got the gig, period, any gig, really, <laughs> but, but that it's with him, that it's for this, 
It is just a masterclass every single day. And and hopefully we're up in our game. You know, we're trying to hang in there Absolutely. with the big dogs. You know, and I, I reinforce my sense that Hollywood, I mean, there are every country on the planet, every has its own film industry in all likelihood. And there are wonderful films being made, all, you know, in Nollywood and Bollywood and just all, you know, Hong Kong and Japan and all these different places. But there is a very real way in which Hollywood is producing product that is more popular around the world than anybody else's product. And I think one of the things that they did, that they're doing, that has created this, this renaissance in television, where the best writing being done is not being done in movies. It's being done on television. And I, I feel like the writer's room, the phenomenon of the writer's room, and the, the maturation of the structure thereof is largely responsible for this. That to me, the writer's room feels like a human mind turned inside out, where we're, we're, they have found a way to replicate the process of creativity using a bunch of different people with different skills and different life experience, all responsible to a hierarchy leading in one guy or one woman who has to hold the entire series, not just an episode, but the entire series in their mind. And if that person is also an executive producer, then that person is also talking to the money people about how we're going to create these images and hire these people and do these effects. That is a level above. I mean, it just is. That's that's extraordinary. It's like somebody simultaneously being a best-selling, award-winning author and an engineer or something. It's like, yeah. wow. And I'm just strapped in for the ride, baby. You know what else is extraordinary? Our guest today. Yes, our guest today. Let's, let's, is, let's go right to it. Our guest today is Ashley C. Ford, the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Somebody's Daughter, published by Flatiron Books. She's the former co-host of the HBO companion podcast, Lovecraft Country Radio. I feel like I was on that podcast, actually. You was were. I? Yes, I was. <laughs> and the current host of Ben and Jerry's Into the Mix. She currently lives in Indianapolis, Indiana with her husband, poet and fiction writer, Kelly Stacy, who is awesome. I met him at the Key West Literary <laughs> Seminar. When I was cold, he offered me an awesome sweater Aww. to wear and trusted me to bring it back, which I did. And of course, we can't leave out their chocolate lab, Astro Renegade Ford. Ford Stacy. Okay, both names. I love that. She's <laughs> written or guest edited for the Guardian, Guardian L Magazine, BuzzFeed, Out Magazine, Slate, Teen Vogue, literally too many to, to mention. She's just incredible. She's taught creative nonfiction at the New School in Manhattan, served as Ball State University's writer in residence, and will be teaching the creative nonfiction workshop at Butler University this spring in 2023. Ooh. You know, I could I could go on and on, but just welcome Ashley C. Ford. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, I thought, Ashley, there's so many things to talk about with you, and you've been so many places you've been on the daily show you have well first of all just congratulations to you for your success with the memoir and just again when i saw you in key west moderating that horror panel that i was on i just this woman is so brilliant just just so casual with the knowledge and <laughs> and, and you're a horror head which is Damn. 
maybe my favorite thing about, you know, it's not my favorite thing, but it's <laughs> one of my favorite things about you. So, you know, this series we're talking about is, is just one more example of horror kind of stepping up and growing up. I'm just wondering what you think about the state of horror in general right now, and then also in particular, Black horror. In general, I've been, it, it's almost like falling back in love with horror. Because I was more of a horror head as a kid, I would say, than I was during my 20s. And I'm 36. So my 20s, you know, is kind of around 2007 through 2017, right? Like that's my 20s. And mm-hmm. there's a lot that happened in that amount of time that at first I, was, I wasn't feeling it. Mm-hmm. But then you get into 2017. And things sort of changed 2016 2017 around that time like what things really could start changing it be in 2017 <laughs> that changed your feelings about horror it was a a small art house film directed by a man What's named jordan peele oh yeah jordan um, peele that's right yeah i remember him fantastic <laughs> it, and i it was sort of that's when i started to re-examine my relationship with horror and sort of go back to things that I had loved before. Because, I mean, I grew up with Tales from the Crypt. A lot of things that I was not supposed to be watching, technically, I was very into. I wasn't very well supervised. Right. And so Tales from the Crypt, I loved when I was a kid. I liked watching. There was a show that came on Showtime called The Outer Limits. That was like a remake, obviously. And watching The Twilight Zone on TV Land and Unsolved Mysteries. And my grandma took me to see the movie Fire in the Sky in theaters. So I was about five years old when she took me to see that movie. Right? And I just loved them. Like, I couldn't get enough. And, you know, I was a kid. So, of course, they tormented me a bit, but I couldn't help it. Like, I I might have to sleep under, you know, my desk chair at night because I'm scared of Candyman. But the next time I go to a sleepover with my cousins and everybody goes, what movie should we watch? I am once again going to suggest Candyman. (laughs) I understand that. I understand that. So So now it's even better. You know, like, what do you think? What is it about horror that attracts you? Why? Do you have any idea why you like it? I think when I was younger, there was an agitation that came with horror. Like you you knew you were going to be, you know, successfully in a lot of cases taken to like an extreme of emotion, which is, you know, usually fear. And I liked that a fear that I kind of felt all the time was then reflected in these characters on screen. It it that felt more familiar to me than things where everybody ended up happy. I liked those too, but when there was, you know, a certain kind of tension going on, like at some point everybody's under attack, right? Can <laughs> you identify the, the fear that you were under? You say you're you were feeling fear all the time. What fear was oh, it? Oh yeah. I had a really, really bad fear of the dark. And I, I did not have a parent who I felt safe with. Got it. Um, right. I didn't really have an adult around who I felt safe with. So I greatly identified, especially 
with movies where like that involved kids like poltergeist you know like her being sucked into that television i almost think part of what i love so much about that movie as a kid was how her family didn't leave the house without her mm-hmm. and how her mom you know went into like this place to get her you know that they went out of their way to like yeah protect and love this child because I I thought nobody would around me would do that for me. <laughs> so, the, the, so the sense was that you watched horror, at least partially for the reactions that the support network of this person oh, yeah. might, might have, that you were looking to fill that gap in your own life. Oh yeah, quite a bit. And I, I and I also just, I think, felt somehow attracted to it. There's yeah. something about the darkness that felt more familiar to me. And I I liked to be a witness to it. I I liked to watch it. I liked to feel in some cases like, man, if these things ever really happen, it's a good thing I watched the movie and I know what to do. (laughs) (laughs) I remember seeing Night of the Living Dead for the first time in the theater. And there was a point at which I was looking around the theater wondering which exits I'd go out if the people around me turned into zombies. It's, it's, It's prep. I I don't have to go back that far. I was at a formal event recently. I won't name it because in most (laughs) ways it was lovely, but it was a monsoon. Basically it was raining cats and dogs and it was literally an outdoor venue. It was well disguised without the rain. It would not have seemed like an outdoor venue, but the Mm -hmm. rain made it very obvious because the carpet was soaking wet and the tent Every once in a while, there was a sound like a giant was walking across the top of the tent and I could see the light rack swaying. And I seemed to be the only person looking up instead of at the stage because right. I was thinking this looked like the beginning of Final Harry, Destination. Final Destination. Like every yes. movie, I'm looking for exits. I'm like, electricity and water are not a good combination. This place yes. is full of electricity. This entire floor is a conductor. Where are the exits? You know? Yes. So it is preparation. It's the thrill of a safe scare for me. The example of teamwork, unity, I love the meeting moment. Like it's sort of an offshoot of what you were talking about. It's the lengths that people will go to to save other characters. For me, it's also like the lengths and the adaptations that people make to save themselves. Like, okay. See, that's that's a thing for me. I really like, even though from time to time, I like a movie in which, you know, everybody dies, you know, just just (laughs) occasionally, just enough for there to be a spice of not being absolutely certain because what I really want to see is people figuring it out mm-hmm. is, is the, the person who makes the fewest errors surviving the person mm-hmm. who, who has the greatest amount of courage and creativity and tries to help people and so forth and so on. You know, it, it, what are the values we're talking about here that, that a horror movie, I mean, one of the reasons that somebody like Stephen King, I think is so, so successful at horror is that he understands what we love. He understands families, he understands small towns, and he will attack the family, he'll attack those small towns, but almost always there is a way out of the darkness. And that way out is, you know, take a look at it. It is these kids standing together against yeah. the monster it, it, that, that creates the opening for them. And they understand this. And to a degree, that matches my own feeling about what it is that we need to move our lives forward or our world forward is standing together against the creatures that would rend our souls and flesh. I think horror for me is unsatisfying without hope. 
Like somebody's got to have hope. Like somebody on this screen has to believe they have a chance to make it. Have you seen a movie? Can you think of a movie that you saw where you felt like there was just no hope? It was like, you know, why am I here? Can you think of a a movie that you saw that was like that? No. And Mm -hmm. I, I, I really can't, like, I can't think of a movie I've seen but I also know myself well enough to know that I, I may have avoided <laughs> all the movies Understood. where that's the case. I'm not really a, a hopeless movie. Kind. I, I always feel like the world will bring you hopelessness. Like, True. That's right. I don't need the world to, will bring need it to, to, you. to pay that's, $10 to see that or $20 to see you that. You know, that, right. that's the truth of it. The, the various fears that we experience in life, whether they're within the home, as unfortunately was, was your case, or societal fears or all of mm-hmm. the above, is so much worse. Being unsafe in one's home is so much worse than the worst demon, zombie, witch, ghost, you name it, that we can see oh, yeah. in fiction on a screen. So, I mean, that that's the real secret. Horror is an escape. Horror is entertainment yes. compared to the realities of life, which are so hard. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, yeah. Well, you you're mentioned Get Out mm-hmm. and <laughs> how it revitalized your interest in horror. It did. I, have you ever thought about why it did? Yeah, <laughs> a lot. I, I, I think... That, first of all, seeing that movie, for me, felt wholly original. It felt wholly original. We had just gotten what feels like, to me, done with a ton of horror reboots. Like, there had been, like, a reboot of Prom Night, and they had done a bunch of reboots of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then they had done, you know, like, a a lot of these that were, you know, some of them were a lot of fun. But they were all like stories that I felt like I already knew. Even like there was one called a, a Black, the remake of Black Christmas. Mm. It was just like, it was good. I liked it, but it was also, I knew what was going to happen. I was halfway there. Mm-hmm. And when I watched Get Out, it, it was one of the first times I had watched a horror movie in years and felt like genuinely shocked. And genuinely, like, I had no idea where this was going. This feels wholly original. And also, I am having an experience inside of myself that feels like being a kid again. 
Yeah. You know, like it reminded me of watching a horror movie as a kid and feeling that like shock surprise of like, oh my God, I can't wait to go talk to my friends after we all see this movie, which in my case might take years because they were better supervised and weren't allowed (laughs) yet to watch those movies. (laughs) Well, I'm glad Steve brought up Get Out and and Black Horror because I want to give a shout out right now to Black Horror. 2023 is going to be an impressive year, especially on the literature side, I want to say, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Jordan Peele definitely opened the doors for all marginalized horror creators. So we've seen a real shift in the industry. But let's not forget the writers are holding it down, too. So Victor Laval has a new book coming out this year, Lone Women, which I cannot wait to read. And I have two books coming out this year. Yep. And there are some up and coming writers People I do not know. And this is like, for me, it's a new experience because I'm used to knowing people. You know what I mean? I'm used to like, we're on the same circles. We have friends in common. These writers are coming like out of nowhere. Jackal by Aaron E. Adams. I don't know if you've read that. And then there's- I have not read it yet, but I'm very, very excited. And The Spite House, The Spite House by Johnny Compton, which I'm in the middle of reading. These are just like really, really- good writers who happen to love writing horror and also happen to be black and they're telling black stories. And I'm like, wow, what a time. A boom. What a A boom. boom. Yes. I hope more sustainable (laughs) than just like a boom, but I, I love it. I love having more options in this space and in this area. I love what comes out of the minds of black folks when they get to have their narrative at the lead of a horror story. I just feel like, I feel like there is a, a consideration of our experience without it being like an over explanation of our experience. And that is so hard to hit as a balance in any kind of Black media and have it be pushed out to the world widely. That is really, really hard to do. And I feel like there are so many things I've seen that have done that really well or attempted it in a way that was inspiring to me in some capacity. Like, I I really, really like Nanny. Um, Mm -hmm. Oh, Nikki Jisu. Yeah. Now streaming on Amazon. I really enjoyed that. And a big part of the reason why I enjoyed it was because it was just like, as you're watching it, you can find that connection to your personal experience, which I love. I love and I love it when that hits as many people as possible. But I also love that it didn't have to make me feel, it didn't have to make me feel decentered. It didn't have to make me feel other in order for me to, to feel connected to the character and to the story. That's a beautiful film. And there's also Master, also on Amazon, oh, by Mariama Giallo, which is difficult, yes. but but fair. Yes. <laughs> it's about a, a really, it's, it's, it's about a Black freshman and a Black faculty member mm-hmm. who are both having their experiences on a predominantly white campus. And wow, it is really jarring, but feels so true. And can you remind me of the name of the actress? who plays the headmaster is it is it regina yeah it's regina it's not regina hall. king hall. Hall? Yes. yes 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 regina yes, yes. hall it is such a different role for her 
as well, that that was also really mind blowing. Like that's one of the things I also really love about all of the black horror that's being made right now is that it's giving so many black actors a chance to play these roles that like it it, it was almost hard to like fathom them in before they're in them. And Mm -hmm. you're like, Oh my God, like you were made to play this role. And how could I have not seen it? She's so good. And it, it, you know, interestingly enough, there is a connection I believe between horror and trauma and Mm -hmm. that people who have sustained trauma do tend to find a little bit more of a home in that darkness sometimes. And this is my way of transitioning to your book, your memoir, Somebody's Daughter. Congratulations for New York Times bestseller. What? I mean, come on now. That is so great. Congratulations. So great. But I know, and I had a a very different experience, Ashley, you know, my, my mother and I were closer, but we also, we wrote a memoir together called Freedom and the Family, a mother-daughter memoir of the fight for civil rights. But even with that closeness, and even though most of the trauma I wrote about in that book was coming from outside, it was coming from society and race, racial trauma. It was the most difficult thing I have ever worked on. And that includes the reformatory, which took me seven years to write. It didn't take me seven years to write the book, but man, it was difficult for me. And also, especially for my late mother, Patricia Stevens do, who had to slog through these memories of the 1960s and being tear gassed and losing friends to suicide who could Mm -hmm. not reconcile the world they actually lived in with the world they thought they lived in. And it just strikes me that writing a memoir like somebody's daughter has to be so challenging. So I really wanted to ask you about that. What was the process like for you when you wrote the book, starting with the moment you realized, you know what, I need to write a memoir. And then how did you carry it once you made that decision? I didn't want to write a memoir. Like I was, you know, I was raised in a bliggity black household. What goes on in this house stays in this house. You don't tell anybody about what's happening in this house. So I I never had any intention of writing a memoir. I actually knew that there were certain, you know, moments in my life that had stuck with me and had imprinted themselves on me in such a way that they were just, they had become these scenes that I was holding on to. And I always thought that I would find a way to transfer those scenes into fiction or into poetry at one point. And what happened was I had to take a nonfiction class to get my creative writing major. And I was like, okay, I'll take this club, this required class because I have to, but you know, I'll keep it light in there. I can, you know, I, I never expected to actually dig into anything going on with me because I didn't want to write nonfiction. That wasn't what I wanted to do anyway. So I had already made up my mind about that. But then I had this amazing professor, Dr. Jill Chrisman, who just blew my mind every week every single week. And I got to this place where I thought, man, I I just, I can't phone it in the way I thought I was going to be able to in this class. So I wrote these essays and I I, I wrote them, you know, as well as I could and, and with my whole heart. And at the end of the semester, we have this meeting with Dr. Chrisman where she goes over what we've written. And she tells me, you have a book in you. 
And I don't know if you're going to write it. I don't know if you want to write it. But what you've written here, this is a this is a, a story that could absolutely be a book. I hope you do something with it. And I always say I feel like she cursed me when she said that because after that, like I, I just couldn't picture doing it differently. I I still tried. It did not work. Like, and I I have this thing where I'm not very good at lying to myself, which is a blessing and a curse. And so I couldn't tell myself like, yeah, it's definitely going to work if you keep writing about this this way. You're going to get it right. It was so clear to me. This is not working. What I was able to capture when I was owning this story as I wrote it, I am not able to capture when I try to turn it into something else. And I I just knew that that's, you know, this is, it's the only way that this story is going to survive is if I put my name on it and say that this is who I am. Otherwise it's it's not going to make it. Sorry to cut you out there. I I went through a similar process. I really, really, really wanted to write it as a novel. And my mother was like, hell no, truth and only the truth. And I wasn't allowed to put in stories she didn't want to put in. And now you put in a whole bunch of stories I'm sure nobody wanted to put in. That has to be very difficult. For people who haven't read Somebody's Daughter, Ashley was raised by a single mother. Her father was in prison. And that relationship with your mother was was difficult. She was a little yeah. whooping, a little easy with the whoopings and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Sure. Now, you the, mentioned that the rule was that what happens in the house stays in the house. Yeah. Have there been any repercussions from the publication of the book? You know, one of the things I realized before the book was published, which by the way, the amount of time between writing these essays and this nonfiction class and then publishing the book, that's like 10 years. <laughs> That's that's 10 years of wow consistently but off and on working on this thing. And in that 10 years, one of the things that I was able to find out through therapy and through my own reflection and, and work was that my relationship with my mom was so unhealthy that I wasn't really in it. <laughs> the ver- the person my mom knew the version of me that like she was cool with and had a cool relationship with was not at all who I really was. It was me being, it was me handling her. It was me showing up the way she wanted me to. And I realized that I don't think I can do that anymore. And I definitely don't think I can do that and write, finish this book and and publish this book. So I had to get really honest with myself about what my relationship was with my mother. And I realized that if the book came out and she was really upset about it, there would be no real repercussions. We weren't close. We didn't have a foundation of closeness. There was not a lot to lose. Oh yeah. That's one of the tools that I consider to be essential for human beings. our ego shells, the part of us that we show to the world is always partially in reaction to the way to what people need. It's how do I manipulate the world to get what it is that I want? Did you discover that you had ill served yourself, that you had not just created an image for your mother, but that you had believed that you were that person? And then what what happened when you went through the process of breaking down the false ego shell so that you could be you? It was recognizing, first of all, that I had abandoned myself in a certain sense to her version of me. 
I had given away my reality, my perception, what I knew for sure in order to sort of live inside her illusion about what our relationship was like. And that just wasn't, it wasn't, it's not even that it didn't feel good. It was also that the stated goal of behaving that way to maintain a certain kind of happiness or closeness with her it, it wasn't real. <laughs> it was just discovering like, oh my gosh, it's, it is it is not, if I'm not showing up as myself, not like, you know, being disrespectful or being, you know, unkind, but if I can't show up as myself in terms of like, I, I, I can't tell my mom what I believe is, is true about the world. I can't tell her my, what I remember about growing up. I can't, ask her questions about herself without her becoming extremely defensive. With all that being true, it was just like, hey, I guess, what am I really risking here? If I lose her, what did I lose? And I wish that wasn't the case. I wish I had the kind of relationship that made me go, I don't want to, you know, say these true things about my mom because I love my mom and we talk every day and she's my best friend. That would be great. But that has never been true for me and my mom. So I I had to be honest that what I was losing was a fantasy and that that was okay. Well, you, you, you were very respectful in the sense that you haven't disclosed her name from what I understand. Mm -hmm. Correct. And, and, and that kind of thing, an act of self-healing and self-expression is not meant to hurt other people necessarily, but I mean, they can feel hurt. Sure. I would think that you being willing to write your journey gives a thousand other women and men permission to take a similar journey. There is nothing the outside world, even the people we love and who love us can offer that is more important than finding out who we are during the finite number of years that we have to be on this planet. There's not, that's, that would almost be the definition of a wasted life to, I agree, you know, to wear the masks that we wore in childhood and never, even after we're old enough and strong enough to protect ourselves yes. to never question the fantasies that we spun to protect us in childhood. It's a trap. It is. It's a trap. It's a I trap. You feel like a, a thousand pound stone is rolled off your back when you started realizing that you were not your mask and you could put it down. And also that like sometimes people who do love you are not great at the actions of love (laughs) are not great at being loving in reality. Their version of love, the way they show it to you is a lot of the times how it was shown to them in some capacity, or it's wrapped up in their definition of what love is, which is, you know, which which can be really warped in, in, in a given circumstance. But, you know, it's, it's this thing where it's like, it's, it's not really a fair trade. Somebody who loves you, who asks you to be silent about the ways that they've harmed you. Mm. That is, that's not a fair trade. That's, that's not an equal trade. That's not something that someone who is being loving to you should ask of you. It's certainly not a healthy form of love. Whatever kind of love that is, it's, you have to have more protection for your own soul and your own inwardness and that little girl inside you, you're that little girl inside you, you are her mommy now. Yes. And you have to take care of her, especially if you're living a creative lifestyle. That's where all your creativity comes from. That little girl has to feel safe. 
And she has to feel safe, for, not just like physically, but also safe in her curiosity. You know, mm-hmm. that was what sucked for me as a kid is that like I had such this like every kid. I was curious like that comes with the package. Kids are curious and something just happens. You have to beat it out of them. For some kids, yeah. You have to shame it out of them. You mm. have to. And I'm. I always held on to a piece of it for myself, you oh. know. But it made me scared to share it, and it made me scared to put it out into the world for people to see. I had to feel invisible, you know. And I'm well, glad I don't have to do that anymore. No, you don't. You're anything but invisible now. <laughs> Miss New York Times bestseller on The Daily Show. And, and I know it took you 10 years to work mm-hmm. on this project. Would you say that it got easier with time or did it get harder with time? And second to that question, were there rituals that you developed while you were working on the book or since you worked on the book that helped you keep centered and balanced? Absolutely. What was the first one? Sorry. Did it get easier or harder as you were going? Oh, Rosebud. Yeah. Um, I would say that it got easier to devote the time to doing it as I continued on. The more I had, the more time I wanted to spend with it and the more I wanted to do with it. But finishing it was the hardest thing I, I I've ever done as a writer. It was the hardest thing I've done. Makes it critical to ask the second p- part of that question, which is yeah. how do you take care of yourself? How did you take care of yourself with it, so that you could commit these daily acts of courage? There were two ways. I I'd say that there was the personal and the professional. The personal was realizing that writing as much as I wanted to think that it was something that I was just doing with my head, it was also something I was doing with my body. And I needed to show up to write with a body that felt like ready to go to that place of focus and ready to go to that place of calm. So it's, it's, I didn't just like, you know, start making sure I I wasn't sitting down at the computer hungry. I also started checking in on my environment. I light a candle. I I found music in advance that I wanted to listen to while I wrote. I have this portrait behind me of my grandmother that who who really believed in me and loved me and, you know, left me half of her pension for the rest of my life because she knew that I wanted to be an artist. And she thought that that would help me become an artist and live my life as an artist. So uh, just having that, like saying thank you to her, honoring her, sitting down, honoring myself, that's what really helped me. And then on the professional side, I got real help. I had to go away to a place I called trauma camp at the time where it was a week of intensive therapy that I, I, I basically had to go figure out that, like you said already, Stephen, that I... My inner child who was terrified to share this work with the world, who was terrified to let it in because then she would have to hand it over and let her editor see it, that I had to reteach her how to trust me and that I was on her side and that we were going to do this together. And then that helped me finish it. That is so beautiful. The What you said about you had to teach her that it was all right for her to trust you. You had to Mm -hmm. regain her trust. I went through a very specific process like that myself, so I have nothing but respect for that. And it was the therapy that helped you with that? Yes, 
Absolutely. It, it, it taught me, it just taught me that I had the ability to be on my own side in oh, a yeah. way that I, I hadn't known before. You know, in one of my other hats, I do life coaching, you know, professionally at a pretty decent level. And one of the most important tools is what I call the ancient child technique to be able to visualize both the child that you were and the old woman, the old man, you're going to be on your deathbed, mm-hmm. you know, that is beyond all ego, beyond all fear. And you listen to the conversations between those two. And if, if you... The, the child has all the creativity and the heart and the elder has the wisdom and all you have to do is live your life in line with that. And, you know, the, the transition we always make at about this point in the broadcast is talking about how we want creative people. And that means all of us really to be able to live high energy lives in integrity with their hearts and their souls and their spirits. And we created this technique, the morning ritual, utilizing affirmations and movement to create what's called incantations, where you're saying something while you're moving. And we created a, a suite of tools that are connected to the, the Tai Chi Chuan form. Oh, you can do it with yoga. You can do it while you're walking, whatever. And that's just fine. But what, what we've specifically done is created, is, is connected it to a moving meditation that is also multi-joint movement for physical health, emotional health, mental health, and in 10 minutes being able to prepare yourself in the morning for a day that is high energy, constantly moving closer and closer to your sense of who you are, that that discovery of who you are as a human being, as a spirit moving through the world. Tananarive? Well, I, as a, as a new Tai Chi practitioner, and I'm so grateful that I accepted you as a teacher, it's tough when you're married. We've been married 23 years, right? So it's tough to sort of put yourself in a student position to your husband. But it's so interesting that when I listen to these Tai Chi modules, and it's not just the physical form, but also Steve's beliefs and practices and rituals, many of which I've heard before. But when I'm listening to the module, it's like, you're just my teacher, right? And I'm just like, oh, I've never heard that story before. Or I like the way he put that. And it has really paid off during this high energy period when I don't know how long we've been working at home, but now we're like out in those streets every day, commuting back and forth in LA traffic. Yeah. Two and a half hours of commute every day. And then intense, intense work in a, in a room full of just brilliant people that we learned so much from, and we're trying to play with on their level. And, and I have just found it to be really, really useful. So all of y'all should check out www.firedancetaichi.com and just see how it feels to you. I, I have created a lot of courses in my life and committing to doing a 52-week course where you're getting one module every week that teaches the entire 108 movements of the Wu style Tai Chi form. And I've been doing martial arts my entire life at this point, teaching Tai Chi for over 40 years and have black belts in Judo and Karate and, and things of this nature. The the idea of being a warrior in your own life, one of the things that you get is that sense of being able to protect your own sacred soul, that child inside you, the part of finding the part of you that would stand at the door of the cave and say, you shall not pass, to make sure that the the, the, the most vulnerable part of you feels totally safe 
in the world so that it can just play, you know, that, that, that's more important than being able to, it's fun to be able to think, oh, I can kick butt, but that's not what we really want is to be able to love our lives and live lives of joy and service and creativity and high energy. And I, I'm pleading with people, you know, give it a chance. Go to www.firedancetaichi.com. If you try it, it doesn't work for you, I'll happily refund your money. This is for real. And if you listen to what our guests talk about, how they healed themselves or how they shaped themselves, there are always stress coping mechanisms. There's always fear. There's always trying to take care of their energy, create their environment externally, internally. It's the artistic life takes everything you have and a capacity for being honest, even when there are people who will punish you for honesty or will try to. So give that a shot. And, and Ashley C. Ford, thank you so much for your honesty and for standing up as a warrior for yourself, because it, without that, you would not have the the sense of, I'm sure, added peace that you have now compared to where you were. And also, you would not have been such a shining light for other people who are struggling with their histories and not sure how to express them or if to express them. You have really shown them a path. So thank you for that. Thank you for your work. Thank you for everything you do. I don't know if there's anything you want to say. What, Where can people find you? Something that What's we want to know about? Yes. I can tell you all kinds of things. You can find me uh let's just say on instagram at smash fizzle very very easy to find my website is ashleyc4.com you can check that out anytime and before i go i want to say thank you both for having me i am a big 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 fan of your work and have been for a while it means the world to me to spend time chatting with you guys on these subjects you both have been guiding lights for me from behind screens, from behind videos in your books. It's been fantastic to get to know you and your work over the years. Thank you for doing what you do. We're honored. Thank you so Ms. much. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. We're standing on the shoulders of, of giants. I want to honor my ancestors and inspire my descendants, you know. Wow. And I'm just so happy for you and Kelly. I love to see love. So being around you two <laughs> That's right. was great. The four of us will be getting on great when you do make it to Southern California and you stay here like I have invited you to. You will come uh, to our house and enjoy, <laughs> enjoy our space. But well, thank you so, so much for being on the Life Writing Podcast. Good luck to you and everything else you do. Everybody, go on and write. If you're not inspired now, I don't know what it will take. Make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story. The hero in the adventure of your lifetime. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye, everybody. Wow, they're yelling. Okay. <laughs> so You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.